Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast. This is where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Benjamin and Pablo, who are two of the core team members of the Cheetow stablecoin protocol. Benjamin, Pablo, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? Hey, man, thanks so much for having us. It's, it's really a pleasure. Hey, thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you guys here. So we usually like to start off with just like some background on our guests. So Benjamin, let's start with you. Like, what's your background? How'd you get into crypto? And then Pablo will move on to you after he's done. Yeah, my, my how I got into crypto is actually pretty close to here. His name is Pablo, or or the penguin as some people call him. Uh, you know, he, he, like very early on when we were very like little, he uh, would tell me about this crazy thing called Bitcoin and how we should all be, we should all be using it. Um, you know, we did a lot of projects together uh, outside of Cheetah, uh mainly like in the infrastructure space, uh, more t- geared towards like developers. Um, I then left uh, crypto and went on to do like traditional finance M&A, which is a terrible idea if you're like a huge degen. Um, like I learned a lot, but I realized, um, you know, the, the faults in the financial system and how crypto is like seriously the future and that's what we should go with. And so that's kind of where I pivoted back to crypto. Yeah. Pablo, what about you? Well, I mean, that, that's the fun origin story. He sees like, you see it from the banking side and like the TradFi space. I came more from a technical, uh, like academic group. Um, I did computer science in university, so I was already building a lot of stuff, doing hackathons and all that. And I was super into AI and like applications, but I had hit a roadblock in terms of uh, building because a lot of what AI required was just huge computational power and like a lot of money, which as a co- college student, I only had access to like a lot of AWS credits and stuff like that. So there wasn't a lot of opportunities to create like awesome AI uh, as like the other opportunities that would be, would have been available with like crypto where you can just create something and it scales uh, infinitely to the power of the network. So in hindsight, I think that's what propelled me to start working a lot more with companies like consensus and others where we would throw events at my university and then suddenly, um, I had a lot of friends in crypto and we could build a lot of things together. Yeah. And you both eventually found your way to Cheetow and uh, all of you are founding members of Cheetow, core contributors. How did all that come to be? Well, you know, we all, we all met uh, like hackathons um, with a team. We, some, some like planned the hackathons, some participated in them, but as you know, like hackathons are just a great space for meeting people. Uh, and so, yeah, we've been in Chidao for, for a long time since the beginning. And um, yeah, that's kind of how we came together. We, we all really like stable coins. And obviously, like, uh, as we saw cross-chain becoming a very strong narrative, we knew that uh, stable coins are going to be necessary native on each chain. And um, being that a lot of the stable coin protocols are very, like, ETH maxi, we knew that they weren't going to port over and uh, most of the applications we'll see would be maybe lending, but mostly like DEXs, like Univ2 forks. And so that was like a huge opportunity 
strategically, right, to insert ourselves as the stablecoin on all these different uh, platforms. Yeah, and I think stablecoins are fascinating to me too. They didn't used to be. I, I used to think they were so boring. And then like the more and more I dug into stablecoins and the different types and how they work, like, the more interested I became. And I, I think it'd be a good idea to just kind of set like a base layer foundation of knowledge for our listeners and our viewers, if they're watching on YouTube, of just like the different types of stable coins and maybe like the security trade-offs that you might have there. Because I think in my mind, there's like, there's like the fiat backed, like the one-to-ones, and then there's the over collateralized, and then there's also algorithmic those are the three that i can think of off the top of my head so can y'all elaborate on that and just kind of talk about the the risk trade-offs or if i'm missing any um maybe touch on those as well yeah i think um nowadays um there seems to be the the view is very much uh blunt it's either algorithmic or fiat back um and at least that's what happens in the media today if you go to coindesk they think Oh, MakerDAO? Well, technically it's algorithmic because there's no money behind it. Um, um, but I, I tend to agree with uh, with your, this idea of uh, fiat-backed, maybe uh, different uh, exogenous collaterals, and then algorithmic, which um, can be described as endogenous collaterals. So things that you're holding, uh, like your governance token, like such as FRAX or UST, where the same governance token can be used to back the the stablecoin. Um, with those three, I think, well, if you can say if you can divide it into the three options, you're able to uh, dive deeper into what is backing the token, which is very important when it comes to uh, these over collateralized loans that back the token, because well, you can. You, you also have other tokens that you have to then kind of fit into one of these categories, such as FEI, which is more about protocol controlled value rather than user controlled value. And that yields different responses because when you have a protocol controlled value, uh, your governance token basically manages this huge treasury. And so there's an incentive to hold a bunch of tokens and control this huge treasury. but you are now kind of uh, responsible as a protocol to maintain the collateralization ratio over 100, which can be sometimes impossible if, you know, let's say you had a bunch of ETH and it just dumps 90%. It might be difficult to maintain that. Um, and yeah, kind of like as I'm explaining here, like you can kind of see why we picked the model that we did, uh, the over collateralized uh, system with a user controlled value. Um, it seems the most effective one because it's the most independent one. So now you are able to have many different parties and many different individuals kind of building together this uh, similar system. And this system could then run with similar risk parameters on multiple chains and be connected in a pretty straightforward way um, through different bridges and uh, we can get into how we do multi-chain soon, uh, but yeah, the main thing is the having multiple exogenous collaterals, which means collaterals that are being held that are not controlled by us directly, allows us to create a very stable system. Um, some might say better than endogenous collaterals could, 
or protocol controlled uh, systems could. Yeah, I would say that I share that opinion. And full disclosure, uh, none of this is financial advice. None of us are financial advisors or attorneys or life coaches. This is not life advice either. But I, I tend to agree with you in the sense that I, f I feel like having an over-collateralized stablecoin that's backed by a, a digital asset like Ether or Matic uh, feels more secure, like in the in the long run. Like if you think of like the most dystopian edge cases for stablecoins, like even USDC and, and Tether, I feel like... I don't know are not as secure just because you have that centralized force and that's those are kind of my thoughts on this and is that kind of the philosophy that y'all have when y'all were creating cheetah yeah definitely i mean we saw in this last crash that you know whereas a lot of investors see cfi or centralized implementations of crypto as safer they're clearly not safer and that's because they lack transparency uh, which is kind of at the core of uh, collateral, like a crypto collateral backed stablecoin. Because you can check on the contract, is there collateral or is there not collateral? It's pretty, it's pretty simple. And to run on to that, like um, fiat backed stablecoins are perfect for on ramping and off ramping. They provide a, a clear arbitrage opportunity for certain actors. So, you know, if you want to buy some USDC, you don't have to go to Circle. You just buy some USDC on Curve, it slowly pushes up the price, and then some financial institution comes in and says, oh, let me arbitrage this. And, you know, I will buy USDC from Circle, transfer it in there, buy some Bitcoin, withdraw it into a centralized exchange, and, you know, do a, do a loop. And so that in itself is pretty healthy for on-ramping and off-ramping. But when it comes to actual DeFi, it doesn't necessarily make sense to provide liquidity uh, into USDC positions all the time because there's only so much of it. So you're dealing with a very scarce resource because it's a fiat-backed bank account or fiat-backed token. So by having a bank account, you are kind of limited by the amount of money that can flow into that. If you can use some crypto-based, secure crypto-based stablecoin, you're able to multiply that, um, the, the amount of money that is in the system by using the, uh, you know, the backing of it. So the, the amount of the chi, the, the strength of the token to create more dollars. So now you can have money, like you can support a bigger ecosystem. Like let's say there's only 80 billion or let's say $10 billion worth of USDC in Uniswap and you divide it into five different tokens, that's two billion each. You divide it into a thousand tokens, you know, you get much, much less. But when you have these different kinds of stable coins, now you, and they must be secure, they can be uh, built with like shaky ground like UST or others. Uh, you can now have, you know, 50, 100 billion that is sort of connected, but not fully connected to USDC. And so, it can provide a better grounds for uh, for growth in terms of uh, having a lot of money flowing around between all these applications. So you don't have USDC stagnant on one random token because you know someone decided that it's USDC, and then you only have this much to play with in the entire system. So 
it really does help in terms of um, um, financial efficiency. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. And uh, I also want to kind of touch on something you mentioned earlier about how in the media there seems to be only two types, right? Fiat-backed and algorithmic. And I've seen that come up with some of my group of friends who are, are not as maybe crypto-native or DeFi-native as I am. And one of my friends asked me, you know, when is DAI going to death spiral? Because it's algorithmic just like Terra, you know, UST. And... Yeah, I think it's just like a, it's just a point of education, right? It's like it, it's because UST was not 100% backed, and Dai and Mai uh, are like over 100% backed by digital assets. And I think it it would also be helpful to explain for our users, like let's just go through an example. Like let's say that I have, you know, uh, ten ether, or yeah, let's say I have ten ether and I want to mint Mai the U.S. dollar denominated stablecoin of the Cheetow protocol. What steps do I go through with that 10 Ether? And then I know y'all are launching V2 as well. So this also kind of helps lay the, the foundation for what happens with V1 and then how the differences are in V2. But let's just start with that example. You know, I've got 10 Ether. What are my steps? What do I do? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have 10 Ether, we can, I guess, assume now it's okay. 1,000. <laughs> 1, uh, so 10,000. We 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 let you borrow, you know, up to seven k of that value. Uh, now, what's cool about Cheeto is that you know we're in a bunch of chains. So whatever chain you have, your ETH, your favorite chain, hopefully it's Polygon. Uh, you know, you can lock up your ETH there and mint my and completely permissionless, right? So when you do this, you have to create a vault uh, that's specific to you and specific to Ethereum. Um, and so, and this vault is, is represented in an NFT that only you can ha only you can access, right? Like it's not the team when they can decide to take your debt or, or take your collateral. It's completely owned by you, and only you can access it unless there's an event of liquidation, which we'll, we'll go over. Um, and yeah, you just choose how much you want to mint. Usually, people don't borrow up to the limit; they leave some sort of buffer because crypto is volatile. And you have to maintain more collateral than debt in, in your vault. Yeah, and it seems like it's a really good way for users to kind of, you know, like if, if I'm still bullish on ETH, I can still hold on to that ETH, but just borrow against it, right? Minting that MAI. So MAI is almost like it's, it's, it's debt, essentially, is what it is, right? It's, it's access to liquidity for people that don't want to sell their assets, right? Um, because usually people are very bullish on the assets they hold and... Or, or maybe they're not, but they've held them for a while and they'd like to not incur, you know, a capital gains moment, I, depending on what jurisdiction you might be in. Uh, you know, this is just an added use case that you can use to manage your accounting more wisely. Yeah. And so kind of like you said, so you have $10,000 worth of Ether and you, so you put in the Cheetow vault, you borrow 7,000 Mai against it. So that's like a 70% loan to value ratio that you're allowing on Ether. And so what happens if the price of Ether drops and how, how do liquidations happen? Can we touch on that as well? Yeah, I mean, as we've seen, the price of Ether can go down. Um, it's not only up, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, uh, but if, if it goes down, 
you know, we have a decentralized and competitive liquidation system that allows people to come in and pay half of the loan of somebody whose vault has become risky and in exchange take an equal dollar value of collateral plus a 10% bonus. And that bonus is what serves to incentivize a liquidator to go in and liquidate the vault. So if you think about it in terms of net gains loss, for the liquidator, you earn 10%. For the vault owner, you're losing about 6 to 7% uh, in terms of a penalty. It's not full liquidation. You don't lose everything. Uh, now, that's in Chirao V1. In Chirao V2, we've added an extra step. So let's say the price of Ether went down and nobody liquidated you. And the price of Ether keeps going down. What, what do we do, right? So in, in that case, we activate uh, a second fallback mechanism that lowers the capital requirements to liquidate a vault. Um, it, it essentially only lets you, only um, requires you to repay the loan until you, the vault reaches a healthy ratio. So effectively it lets you buy a, uh, a risky vault. So buy someone's bad debt. And this is only in very extreme scenarios. Uh, and we're talking when, say, a vault is under collateralized, which could happen in all, I mean, many different protocols like Aave, uh, MakerDAO. If the, the vault, or well, MakerDAO has uh, auctions, but a vault could still be bought for like zero, as it happened uh, like a couple of years ago. Um, now, these cases are not as extreme, but in protocols that give bonuses to liquidators, if the vault or the loan is under 100%, liquidation reduces the amount of collateral. It doesn't increase it. So if you're at night in like 100% and there's 110% uh, bonus, just gonna slowly eat into it and liquidate and liquidate nonstop, which can happen in different protocols, which leads to you know having no collateral or having, yeah, no collateral and a little bit of debt, which is where, you know, safety modules come in. Um, we want to reduce, and so w from our perspective, we want to reduce the amount of um, work uh, that the DAO has to do or interventions the DAO has to do. And so this is where this other step can come in. So anybody, if there's a vault that's you know, under collateralized or just enough that the bonus won't help, they can basically assume the debt of that user. And now they have to maintain the, the collateral to debt ratio. But to assume the debt, they have to basically put in like 30, 20% to bring it all the way up to the minimum collateral to debt ratio, which would be, if in this case, it's like 100%, they need to bring it up to 130, 135. So this is them purchasing the entire vault as opposed to doing partial liquidations? Or am I understanding? Okay, so I'm understanding that, right? Because the loss is very similar still, if you think about it. Because if you're a vault holder and you have a little bit more collateral than debt, I mean, your net value there is just that little collateral that's over. And so essentially the penalty is the same either in either system. So for V2, is it the liquidators have two options? They could do partial liquidation or purchase the whole vault. Is that true? Or do they just have to purchase the whole vault? They can purchase the whole vault only under specific circumstances. Yeah. So in our cases, uh, uh, if a liquidation can't bring up the uh, collateral to debt ratio, then um, buy risky is enabled. 
and that happens uh let's say usually at one uh one ten percent so and it is much lower than like the usual because you know our cdrs usually are 130 150 so if there's no liquidations and it keeps dropping all the way to 110 the moment it hits 109 then somebody can pay 20 21 uh, percent and bring it all the way up okay that makes sense and when these liquidators are liquidating or purchasing these vaults they're using my to purchase that bad debt essentially right or they're using my which is then being burned by the protocol which which is one of the ways that it helps maintain the peg correct right yeah it's just repaying the loan essentially yeah that makes that makes sense and so what other mechanisms are in place to maintain uh my's peg one-to-one with the u.s dollar i know there's a few of them yeah i mean we have we have a few systems all designed to keep the agency at the user level as opposed to having you know a centralized actor uh like the dao um so one, one of them that we kind of pioneered was interest using interest bearing die to kind of stabilize the peg so let's say that the value of my is increasing above a dollar what we can do is we can increase the debt ceiling for interest-bearing die, and obviously people are going to lever interest-bearing die because we don't charge interest, and um, it's like very profitable to lever interest-bearing stable coins with not a lot of risk, right? Because ideally, die doesn't depeg a lot compared to like Ethereum or compared to BTC that are much more volatile. Uh, so that brings it back down. Now, if the peg goes too low, like below a dollar, then people can buy my at a discount and then repay their loan. And we will assume that the, the each my is a dollar when you're repaying your loan. And so there's a nice little arbitrage there where you can repay your loan at a discount. Yeah, that makes sense. And do, do y'all have, I know you had the, uh, the anchor as well, right? Like you could... I guess, convert your MI to USDC at any time? Yeah, initially that was one of our first implementations. Um, this is prior uh, working with Curve, um, where we created a, a PSM, like a, um, basically a peg stability module, similar to MakerDAO's, where users could buy MI from a contract and it, it would only be done via stable coins and basically just swap it back and forth uh, with a 1% fee. Now, I th the contract is still there. Users, there's probably like a few thousand dollars in there. Um, it is usable, but at the end of the day, we found more efficient mechanisms, um, particularly having a strong stable swap on every chain that we're on, allows us to create better incentives for our users than if it's all controlled by the, the protocol and then, you know, the, the risks uh, that come from that. And yeah, the, while you're talking about like having my on other chains, like I, I can only imagine like the type of logistics and developer coordination that has to happen to bridge my to other chains or get my on other chains. Cause like, if you think about it, like in my mind, my on Polygon and then you've got my on like, I know y'all are on cello. Like the, to me, those are like two completely different assets because you have to take into account like the base layer protocol as well. So like what, what kind of logistics and hurdles have y'all had to go through 
to bridge my to all these different chains? And do y'all deploy your protocol natively, or do you just mint the my on Polygon and then bridge it to those other chains, or a combination of both, probably? At the beginning, yeah, uh, there was a little bit of minting on Polygon and then bridging, um, which is our like you you see some remnants of that uh, in the Phantom deployments, but in general, we've uh, we deploy our own contract on every uh, chain. So if you think, yeah, we deploy the entirety of Cheetah at some point, but it's more of a stage uh, process. So stage one will be deploying the stable coins, deploying the governance token. Then from there, we, we provide liquidity on one side of a bridge. And so the idea of us controlling the canonical token on every chain gives us more control over okay tomorrow we want to deploy vaults and we don't have to ask i don't know seller bridge or c bridge to um you know give us control over it because otherwise they will be the ones minting into the vaults which is a huge risk uh depending on what what could happen you know because it could be the official bridge here or relay chain there or all bridge or C bridge or any swap. There's a lot of bridges, and there's some that I probably haven't mentioned yet. Um, and so, with that in mind, controlling the um, the canonical token allows us to then uh, create swapping systems, or I think we uh, we'll call it the, the hub. And the hub allows you to swap your relay my or your any my or whatever my into the canonical my up to a certain amount so then we can uh, control the, the different bridges that we're on and give them kind of like a an, a specific amount a limit that they can swap into any chain which lets us um, build a more robust and multi-chain system because now there's multiple bridges that you can use not just one yeah, and how many chains are y'all on right now? Like, how many different chains do you have my deployed on? 20 chains. That is a lot. Yeah, we're the most cross-chain stable, at least decentralized stable coin. So uh, a, lot, a lot of deploying, a lot of uh, BD, a lot of managing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just kind of a testament to, like you said, your team and the need for this asset in the crypto market in general. And so y'all, you know, y'all have scaled very quickly in terms of like daily active users, total value locked, total chains deployed, I guess is another metric you could look at. Like, what do you attribute all that growth to? I think um, something that's very unique to Cheetah versus other projects is our uh, focus on partnerships, right? Um, a lot of projects might try to build everything in-house or, you know, by themselves. But I think, you know, we've done a lot to, you know, work with others and put interoperability first. Like we could make our own interest-bearing tokens or we could partner with Beefy, right? And use their interest-bearing tokens. We could make our own bridge or we could partner with multi-chain, right? So with these different like steps, we, we create a system that benefits everybody for helping Mai, right? So in SpookySwap or in QuickSwap, you know, if you can mint Mai against Quick, right? Then QuickSwap's not gonna, it's gonna have an incentive to you know, help promote my, right? Because that means more people are locking up quick. And so if you do these different kinds of games in different chains, 
right? Uh, it's everybody's stablecoin. It's not just like some uh, closed system that you create. Yeah, and something that I meant to touch on, but I, I forgot to when we were just kind of talking about general, uh, the protocol in general, is that, you know, I think with DAI, there's an interest rate that is charged. And with y'all, it's, it's like a minting and redeeming fee. And so you don't charge interest on the MAI that is minted, right? Just a redeeming fee, but yeah. Oh, just a redeeming fee. Okay, I thought there was a minting fee as well. So I mean, you can pay me a minting fee if you want. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you my address after. Yeah. Uh, wh why did y'all choose that model? Um, initially, I think it was more around looking at what can help build a, I mean, the, the most... The, the the best way to do it quicklier and we figured users as soon as they they take out uh like a, a loan against their own values of, against themselves um they're not gonna want to pay it back because the longer they hold it the um the cheaper it becomes if you hold it for a year that's you know half a percent if you hold it for six months that's one percent if you hold it for three months you know that's four percent so or two percent um, so the shorter the loan, the more you're, and you, the more you end up paying. So it drives for more long-term uh, usage of the protocol and looking, I mean, we did the math and it was like around 7% uh, churn, which was providing enough in fees to maintain the protocol anyway. So we didn't necessarily need to go off the gate with, uh, interest. Now, this slowly changes with a V2, where we do add the optionality of interest rates. And that's not something that we want to do like all the time, but it allows us to sunset vaults in a more efficient way. Initially, uh, with the DAO, we, we talked about maybe increasing CDRs to you know, turn off a vault, but that can lead to front running and liquidations because you, know, you might have a vault at 131, and like it's at 130, so the moment it goes to 131 and it slowly moves up, you get liquidated. That might not be a, a that wouldn't be a nice user experience, and it would cause congestion of the network. So another aspect of Cheetah V2 is uh, we can turn on interest rates if we ever want to turn off a vault, for example. Okay, and so you can turn on it like through governance. You can turn on interest rates, and is that you know does it? Basically, the user has the option to take the interest rate or choose the redeeming fee? No. So, for example, let's say a collateral is no longer desired by the DAO. Or maybe a certain vault specifically on a chain is not desired by the DAO. Um, how can you, you know, kind of push people to repay their loan? Will you start increasing their loan value? Uh, so they would have to pay both, right? Like, your loan will keep increasing until you repay it. And when you repay it, you pay your 0.5% fee. Now, of course, like sunsetting vaults is completely up to the DAO. And so, you know, there may be different uh, things that the DAO votes on. They could vote to take out the repayment fee. Uh, I don't think they would because we charge so little. <laughs> but I mean, it could, right? So it's all up to the DAO how sunsetting will work. We're just trying to give more tools to the DAO. What other revenue drivers do you have to the protocol outside of the redeeming fee? And I guess the potential interest fee if people, if governance wants to implement it. What, like, what, yeah, what other revenue drivers do you have? Uh, I mean, we provide liquidity to uh, some lending markets and that produces interest revenue for the protocol. Um, 
And then another one is the posophy. So when you farm on our farms, the farms that give chi, uh, we give a 0.5% uh, deposit fee. And through aggregators like Beefy, right, we have that constant uh, auto compounding, which gives us some revenue. Okay, interesting. And I remember, like, I, I was hearing on the Discord AMA that y'all did last week. Was that last week? Yeah, it was. That y'all were positive, like y'all were net positive last year from a protocol revenue to expenses standpoint. Can you can you touch on that? Because I think that's I don't think there's a lot of protocols who are doing that. Uh, our first year, so right now we're like a year and a month, if you will, and our first year we made more money than we spent on incentives which you know it's a pretty big feat like you don't you don't see that uh, in a lot of protocols um and yeah i mean even today our after like the whole like usd fiasco our price to earnings uh is still like under one so i mean it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable you don't see that uh, even in traditional companies to have a pe lower than one yeah that's that is interesting and so does the dow benefit from this i guess net positive Revenue. I don't know if I want to call it net income because it's a protocol, and that's just I don't know if that term necessarily fits. I mean, there are ways for the protocol to benefit from the influx of tokens, right? So if if you're locking chi uh, between a, a week and four years, you can get part of these this influx of tokens, um, and then you know that's like thirty percent. Seventy percent is then kept in the DAO. For, for several reasons. One, I mean, for paying payroll, for doing grants, uh, incentives, and then, of course, in case anything happens, uh, you know, the DAO has a treasury to do things with if the DAO votes to do things with that treasury. Okay, so in this two-token system, you, right, you've got MAI, which is the stable coin, and then you've got Qi, which is the governance token. And you can, I guess that's similar to Curve in the sense that you can lock up your Qi for up to four years and, but you also get the benefit of uh, protocol revenue when you lock up your chi. And so how, I don't know, what, what other benefits are there to locking up your chi and who determines how, you know, I, are those, I, I'm assuming those are paid in chi tokens and, and who, de, who determines the amount of, of distribution? Is it the DAO? So the DAO has voted on, you know, how much percentage to distribute. Uh, to people that stake their chi. Um, I mean, uh, one thing that I would say is different for our governance compared to maybe Curve is that, you know, whereas like in Curve, most of what happens uh, for the revenue generation is kind of automated, right? Or it's up to like the protocol itself, not really the DAO. Chi does very like hands-on. So like, it's not like you just buy chi and stake it and then get part of the revenue. It's really like chi holders are very active uh, in making sure that we're successful and making sure that we're bringing in business. Uh, so that's kind of like a little bit different. Like, for example, we have uh, a lot of community members who took it upon themselves to build out the uh, alliances within some chains, which the alliances is part of the partnerships. It's kind of a step further where community members are coming in to say optimism and they're rallying the troops, so to speak, to push for more incentives in optimism and to have more collaterals and more debt ceilings in optimism to build a to build out that network so it's kind of like different cells or tribes going in to different chains and kind of pushing them up 
which gives more value to the overall system. And it creates a sense of community in different chains where now, you know, my can be more of a default asset asset for people. Interesting. And so on the voting power, like if I, I guess it like in similar models, like I lock up my chi for four years, I then get four times the voting power. Can I, can I also delegate that voting power to anybody or is that uh, not an option in this uh, instance? No, yeah, you can, you can delegate your voting power and you can revoke that delegation. You can also vote. Uh, very recently now you can vote from any chain that she's on, uh, which is pretty crazy. So I, th- I think there's no other DAO that can do that, like vote for, from so many uh, chains. Yeah, that's something I haven't really looked into is like, how does that, how does that message relay system work from chain to chain? Do you... We're doing a lot of experimentation. I think uh, we're learning together with Snapshot uh, on that because nobody has really tried that. They, they, uh, Snapshot has a limit for like eight strategies, which effectively caps it at like eight chains. Well, you can hold Chi on like 15. Um, I think we put 11 on our strategy. And um, yeah, we constantly get this these random errors of like, could not calculate your score. Um, but I think this allows us to kind of build at the forefront. Um, in terms of delegation, just to be clear, I think we only do Phantom and Polygon for now um, because it requires a delegation contract which hasn't been deployed everywhere, as well as a subgraph, which the graph isn't everywhere yet. Um, so random things. At the end of the day, there's a lot, there's a lot of aggregation for the signatures and the voting um, that is done uh, through these oracles effectively a snapshot um in the future we want to execute through like gnosis and safe snap but until then it's through delegates uh, who sign okay yeah that was uh, kind of leads into one of my next questions was you know is this governance on chain or is there a, a multi-sig and how do you determine who the multi-sig signers are and where i guess where in the protocol stack are those multi-sigs Right now, most decisions are made by people that have a governance token and they vote on Snapshot. And then those decisions are then executed by a multi-sig uh, made of all doxed people. Um, now, the plan is to eventually roll out chain-specific multi-sigs, right, with stakeholders from that particular chain. Um, but it's a process, right? Uh, this involves a lot of trust and you know organization uh but like paula said the, the the goal eventually eventually is to have everything through safe snap and completely like on chain but that's that's a lot of infrastructure that's yet to be built on a lot of these chains the, the way we walk towards that is by right now you you'll see a lot in our discord how we're creating uh processes because at the end of the day if a chain wants to grow they might just you know mint a bunch of chi and provide incentives and put one collateral because they have a bunch of that one collateral. And that may not be conducive for a healthy system. So having steps and checks and balances for these chain-specific multi-sigs to grow allows uh, the system to grow healthy and create a very uh, secure uh, network of CDP networks. So by th- that's what we're working on right now with the processes th- 
you can call them like standard operating procedures. And then we move towards uh, more decentralized execution with the backstop being a multi-sig. Um, but as we see with the bigger protocols like her on Aave, a multi-sig is the most efficient way to relay messages across different chains. Um, yeah, like that's that's just the way it is today. Maybe in the future it isn't. In the future we can maybe run a Cosmos chain that sends messages to multiple chains or Snapshot uh, builds a, you know, a system that can uh, use like reality.io uh, oracles to execute on uh, Gnosis safe. Uh, but considering that it's TBD, we move slowly by creating these operating procedures so that we can get people, because if you can get 20 people to agree on something, that's a little bit like a consensus algorithm. Um, no, more manual, but it can work for the time being and create the, enough security to be able to build what we need to build today so that we can get to where we want to be tomorrow. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Um, wow, this yeah, this is fascinating, and I think yeah, it's just something people don't really realize, right? It's like yeah, you can deploy your protocol on other change, but like there's so many logistical issues and hurdles that you can run into. Like you know, do you allow governance on those other chains? You probably should, right? And but the infrastructure is not quite there yet. I mean, we're definitely moving towards that multi-chain world and it feels like to me it feels like Cheetah is probably the best positioned stablecoin for the m future of the multi-chain world is that something that's like on y'all's roadmap or, or in y'all's philosophy that y'all focus on is just preparing for the multi-chain world and like i don't know what does that look like for y'all I, I think it's a matter of not not like holding on to anything you know being really open maybe multi-chain is the way Maybe it's not, right? So people, when they go on Polygon, right, they have the choice to go Polygon, then if they put the assets there, you know, that's kind of what they're banking on. Um, and I, I think, yeah, we're very well positioned as a multi-chain protocol um, long-term. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the future, maybe it's not. But we should prepare so that users have the option, right, to, to be on these different chains. The optionality, the liquidity. So that's what we focus on. Like there was a point when Phantom was doing these rewards and incentives and people started moving their money into Phantom for the TVL stuff. And there was just no way to bridge from, say, Poly uh, from Polygon to Phantom unless it was with mine because it was the only one that provisioned uh, liquidity on all the different chains. So you can just quickly mint in and out. Uh, but you, it was USDC, DAI, everything was dry because people were using the network too much. And so that type of optionality enables the users to work better. And it just so happens that it aligns very well with the multi-chain strategy, which is TBD, uh, as we've seen, because maybe a standalone layer one isn't as uh, the best value proposition, but maybe it's a layer one connected to a company that's on-ramping like crypto.com or Binance or maybe a Coinbase chain um, that could be the multi-chain world. And so we, we don't necessarily have the answers to that. And that's where 
we focus more on the optionality and the liquidity for users to be able to freely transact between these different chains. I'm just kind of thinking of like recent things in the news. Like, what are y'all's thoughts on algorithmic stablecoins? I would assume, I mean, I would just say that y'all are experts in the stablecoin space, definitely professionals in the stablecoin space. But I don't know, like, do you feel like, you know, it's just like time and time again, these algorithmic stablecoins have failed, right? You look at like Iron Finance, like Iron Titan was one. Uh, wasn't Beanstalk one too? I, I, that was like a flash in the pan for me. I barely remember that one. Um, but what are y'all's what are y'all's thoughts on those in general? Like, do you think that there's a way that it could ever work? I, I think it's a great uh, idea in in theory, because creating a bunch of tokens out of thin air and having systems in in place to maintain its value without having to have too much collateral. Well, that's the whole idea behind what we talk about with these over collateralized stablecoins, where you want to be able to have a value transfer that's quick and you don't want to be confined to the uh, the fiat or like asset backed so for all intents and purposes it's a cool idea and in if it works if it worked well it would be amazing but unfortunately we haven't seen sustainable systems that can grow at very large scale um, specifically because a lot of these algorithmic stable coins take one kind of endogenous collateral, which can, I mean, at the end of the day, it sort of works, but it's also a danger for those protocols. Because, you know, like at the end of the day, it's a little bank run, and it's very difficult for them to come back from that. At least with a CDP stable coin, if there's a bank run, it it will just get bought up, you know. Who doesn't want to pay their debts at seven percent discount? So there's there's always a point where people will buy, buy, uh, to bring it back up to a dollar because they want to pay back their debts and unlock their token. Because at the end of the day, that's what these the money that's backing my uh, out there for it's somebody else's uh, debt position. That makes sense to me. So you know we've got about. Eight minutes. I don't know. We could probably go over time a little bit if y'all have time. But is there anything that I haven't touched on yet or haven't asked that y'all y'all want to touch on specifically? Um, I guess I, I mean I would I would talk a little bit about like we we've talked about USDC. We talked about centralized stable coins. Uh, we're not trying to replace USDC and we're not trying to replace Tether. Right? They they're very good stable coins. I mean, if you think about it, volatility is very low. So if if I'm if I'm holding a uh, like a stable coin USDC is not a bad idea. Um, where where the use case is different is like mice not just to hold. It's not just a stable coin within itself. It's also kind of like a lending platform, right? Because you're having that leverage aspect. And so that's something that I would uh, say that's different about my than than the centralized stable coins aside from its backing. Yeah, I think here we can probably drop a, a call to action for any protocols that would like to work with us. Um, we do work with a variety of protocols, either directly or through our partners, such as uh, like lend, uh, generalized lending protocols or like uh, isolated ones like Manhattan Finance. So uh, we, yeah, we're always looking for uh, 
new tokens, companies that may be building new tokenomics like GameFi or others that want to have a stable coin that can be minted through their governance token. Now, barring you know liquidity constraints and risk, uh, we can uh, collaborate with y'all to create a well, more access for liquidity by minting with my uh, in your chain or in your protocol. Um, I'll be pretty excited to work on that. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. I, and that's you know I think when I kind of look around the ecosystem, I think you know the protocols and teams that do a really good job of differentiating themselves are the ones who differentiate themselves by the partnerships that they're forming, which is something that y'all are doing. So I, yeah, I, I've always been a big fan of that. I, the Index Coop did a really good job of that. And I feel like Polygon does a good job of that as well. So um, obviously big fans of all those two protocols and Chidao as well. And another question that I had you know, you also have this other anonymous, pseudonymous founder called Lao Z. And I was just kind of curious, like, why did that individual choose the name Lao Z? And also, like, the name Qi, Q-I, like, where does that name come from? Yeah, I mean, not, not everybody in crypto likes to give out their identity. And so people choose pseudonyms. Um, like in Chidao, we have a lot of references to Taoism. That's how you get the name Chidao, right? Because Chi is like energy and Tao is like the way of, right? So that's kind of how Chidao gets its like references. And Lao Tzu is the most famous Taoist philosopher. And so it kind of fits the whole vibe. Yeah, that makes sense too. So what else on the roadmap are y'all excited for from the Chidao perspective? Something I'm really excited about is um, having multiple interfaces for borrowing my, and you know through Chirao V2, this is something that, and our partnership with Manhattan Finance, this is something that we're kind of opening up to more people, and so basically today, you could come to us and say, you know, I want to run a front end for these vaults on this chain, and what we do is like, okay, you can mint it through our contracts, and we'll give you some sort of fee some sort of like revenue sharing. And, and so that, that helps out the, the protocol doing the front end because they get revenue, they get added functionality on their website, more food traffic. And us, it helps because, you know, we're getting mined different places. What about you, Pablo? Well, I, I'm really excited for this, uh, these decentralized front ends, um, but also the, um, the more automation we're introducing to the system. And I say automation, but in a way that everyone can be uh, the executor of these activities and we'd be rewarded as such. So those two things are really exciting because then um, there's no front end to take down because there's so many and everyone is incentivized to run it. And there's very little management to be done other than, you know, tracking once uh, we're fully automated and users are incentivized to call the functions then it's a matter of um, keeping track of you know activity and putting time locks in so it's going to be it's it's pretty exciting the next six months what it what's going to happen with that uh, v2 as we continue to uh, uh, deploy more collaterals and create these uh, front ends yeah i've got two more questions for you guys the next one is i mean i think it's safe to say that we're in a bear market right now it feels like we're in a bear market 
what what's it like to build in a bear? Because I feel like y'all were born in the bull market, and now we're in the bear, and we're building. Like, just kind of like the differences between those two. Our careers in crypto. This is not our first uh, bear. In terms of our careers in crypto, now the best time to deploy is a bull market because you're able to sidestep a lot of the the growth pains at the very beginning you know getting your first step of users uh, be able to iterate and be able to um, get partners quickly you know in a bear market no one really wants a partner unless you're like well known because otherwise who who are you you know especially if you're slightly alone uh, it can be complicated um so um pretty happy with having started when we did um with this bear market it's gonna be well as benjamin mentioned earlier we're doing okay in terms of uh revenue and so we in the foreseeable future i think we're we're doing pretty pretty well and so now we want to share that wellness with what we said previously with the front ends because now other users other people can build up with uh what we've created so far and make uh, a living um, by maintaining front ends yeah and, and bear, bears come and bears go i think it's important to maintain your you know your ideology right uh, around crypto and its place in the world right like Paula said, I mean, most of the time I've been in crypto and building crypto has been bear. So <laughs> I'm very, I'm very familiar to building in a bear market. And yeah, like Paula said, amazing that we started building the, day, the time that we did. Um, it really helped give us some sort of credibility. So now that there's like the bear market, we can go to other projects and keep doing the partnerships that have caused us to succeed so far without them being like, who, who are you? You know, why, why are you reaching out? Um, yeah, happy to keep building because I, I know it's going to continue having adoption. The bears where the new financial primitives get born from a DeFi standpoint, and y'all are doing just an incredible job over there. Love the protocol. Um, so, yeah, last question for y'all is, you know, where can people go to find out more about the two of you and Cheetow? Yeah, I mean, if you want to learn more about Cheetow, uh, my.finance is a great place to start. We have very comprehensive docs. And we also have a community guide that's made by the community in like nine different languages. Um, if you don't find your answers there, we have a Discord, which is linked on our Twitter. That's Cheetow, Q-I-D-A-O, protocol. Uh, so, yeah. And then for us, you know, you can find us on the Discord, on the Telegrams, on, on Twitter, uh, lurking about. Awesome. Well, yeah, everyone who's watching on youtube thank you for watching if you're listening on spotify or apple Podcasts, thanks for listening as well this has been a great time thanks ben pablo and i'll catch y'all next time thank you thank you